line is broken all the same time. Yeah. There's nothing used from one line to the next to the next. It's a duplicate. Okay. Even the like base material size. So like you know, we should be making things with like this is what we're doing. Thank you, Alex, who is going to check on Gemma. Um, bow your heads with me really quickly. Lord, I pray again. I can never be too much prayer. I pray that you would simply bless the next 30 minutes or so, if I can keep it to that. Bless a time and a space and the words that come from my mouth, that they may be true to you, that you may speak through me and that your spirit may do work on our hearts today. In your precious name, amen. <clears throat> so I don't know about uh, all of you how much you've been reading along in this process, and if some of you have had a chance to read through all of 1 John, maybe multiple times, this chapter, chapter 4, um, I've been looking forward to chapter 4, let's put it that way. Chapter 4 is a big chapter, and I feel like in some ways we are on, we are on the mountaintop of, of what John was getting to in this letter. We're in sort of his exaltation, his crescendo, um, and it all comes together. Everything comes together in these verses to me. Uh, this idea, this concept, this doctrine, this belief, this truth that God is love. 
That's it. That's the totality of God's character. All of who he is is love. He's not love and a bunch of other things that aren't love. He's not love and hate and anger that don't have love. Love wraps everything that God is together. All of what we know created in his image and in his character and as a representation of who he is is bound by love. And so everything that we do ought to be bound by love. There's a there's a holistic understanding and it's just such a simple, it's three words. God is love. I want to I want to tackle two things looking at this, and I want and I want to challenge us. The two things I want to look at is: Do we have a knowledge of the loving God? Do we really have a knowledge of a loving God? And are we abiding in a loving God? Everything will be under those two headings. Do we have the knowledge of a loving God? And are we abiding? If we know a loving God, if we really know that God is loving and we really believe that he's fully and entirely loving, are we abiding? Are we living within that as an expression of that in the whole of our life? So I want to start with this question to all of you. What is the most important thing to you in your life? What do you live for? If somebody were to point a gun to your head and say, what is your reason for being alive? What would you say? I mean, really, what would you say? What, what do you, how do you live your day to day? And what does that say about what's important to you? Might you say that your family's important to you and that you need to keep on living for your kids, that your friends are important to you, that, that you need to keep on living because you have great work to create, that there are still things to get done. Is your life important because somebody needs to see that you're somebody, right? You need to lead somebody. You need to show up for somebody. You need, you need to earn somebody's love, and that's what you're after. What is the most important thing to you in your life? Whatever your answer is to that question, your life is utterly wrapped up in that. You're utterly tied to what is the most important thing to you. Ultimately, if the most important thing to you isn't to worship God, your creator, then you will not be able to love other people fully. Well, you say, John, how do you, how do you get to that? How, I don't understand. I can love people. I've been loving people. But I also think I'm bound to be a great singer and I'm going to be a, a great artist or I'm going to, I'm going to be an incredible uh, scientist or engineer or I'm going to be a fantastic um, chef. These are the things that I know about myself. I know these things are going to happen. My life is a pursuit of these things too, you say. My life is a pursuit of these things as well. And I've, I've figured out a system where they all work together. I figured out a way for these to mesh up. You don't understand, John. I, I love God fully, and yet I know that God will have this for me because God loves me. I know that he will make me a great whatever. Right? Is that the way you're actually living your life? And when push comes to shove, what's important to you, what you worship is 
this nice arrangement of God right next to another idol. You've got two. You actually don't have one. You have two set up there. And when you come to worship, God is actually in service to your true idol. God is in service to your true goals, to your true purpose, to what you really want. We don't have, and I think it's, I think the reason that maybe, if that's the case for you, here's my hypothesis. Here's my hypothesis. The reason that that may be is because you don't fully believe that God is a loving God. You've had to reserve a part of your life. You've had to fence it off and say, just in case you're not loving. I've seen a lot of things, God. I've seen a lot of hurt in the world. I've seen a lot of pain. And I need to have this thing that's my own, right? I need, when, when, when it really all is hard, right? And I can't get out of bed in the morning. Or I can't go to sleep at night. Or I, I, I didn't have that date with my friends. Or I didn't get that time with my husband or my wife. And I just feel like nobody really cares about me. At least I know that I meant for this thing, right? If you're doing that, you don't fully believe that God loves you. You haven't understood everything that he's done as an expression of his love. You've said, well, God's wrath and the pain in the world can't come from a loving God. Hey, you guys, can't come from a loving God because God would never do that. A loving God would never create that pain in my life. There would never be that wrath. That just doesn't make sense to me. So, so I'm going to come to church and I'm going to I'm going to worship, but I, I'm so much wrestling with this, right? And, and I'm just kind of hoping that it'll work itself out. But the reality is, everything else about your faith is not going to come to pass if you can't fully commit to a God who is in charge and in control of your life. This section is is all tied together with this notion of abiding in God. God is love, and we abide in that love. We are doing no abiding in love if we don't believe that God truly loves us. Our allegiance is not to him. We, we, use, we use these words a little bit interchangeably, right? We talk about faith. Well, think about faith as allegiance, right? Who, who is your allegiance to? Who do you follow no matter what? Worship, same thing as faith, same thing as allegiance. What are you living for? If you are living for anything, anything other than God, then ultimately you are living for that thing and you will not be able to love because when you can't have that, you're going to stick out for yourself. So what we see in verse 7 and 8 is that God is love. And it says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So right there in that statement, we have John's saying, let us love one another because love is from God, right? God is love, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. They're abiding in God. And then he goes on to define, he says, okay, 
Now I'm going to tell you what love is. Verse 9 and 10, he's telling us what love is. We need a definition for this kind of love. Because you could, you could at this point of this, of this sermon, of this talk, you could say, well, lo- yeah, love, love loves lots of things. Right? I love my cat. I love my boyfriend or my spouse. Or I love good food. Right? John says, no, we're not talking about that kind of love. In verse 9 and 10, he defines what kind of love we're talking about. And he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so we might live through him. In this is love. That's the definition piece. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is kind of this crazy word we never use anywhere else except in the Bible, right? Propitiation is like another word we don't use a lot, atonement. And what that means is it's a sacrifice for us, right? We know why Jesus died on the cross for us. It was to sacrifice himself for something that we could never earn, that only he could do for us. This word propitiation means a sacrifice to save, So we are talking about a kind of love that God has that is a heroic love. A love that we look at in movies and the great stories is the love of giving one's life for somebody else. That's the kind of love that we are supposed to have in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. So John is writing this letter to his church and he's saying, beloved. First of all, he's saying, I'm doing it. I love you. Let us love one another. With a heroic love. I mean, that is a tall order, right? That is what we're here to do as a church, is to love each other, not just the people in this room. We are to love the whole world as Christ loved the whole world with a heroic love. How on earth do we do that? (laughs) I mean, how on earth do we do that? He says, you can do this because you abide in me, my spirit is in you. And you're not doing it alone. That's the big key. You are not doing it alone. There was a sacrifice of love that gives you the power. It says, you don't just come up with this love. I think one stumbling block for me as I was sort of meditating and working, I mean, this was a hard passage for me, you guys, this week. I wrestled with this passage. Because I thought, oh, I'm really looking forward to this. This is going to be so great. And then I dug into it and I go, how do you do this? <laughs> I mean, how do, I, I can't stand up here and preach this. I have literally no, how I do, no idea how to live this. And I just attempted to live this for like two days, guys. Two days is what I've done trying to attempt it. Like, that's my success rate so far. If I were to chalk up how well I've done at loving one another with this kind of love. And I have blown it all over the place in my attempt to do this. In this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God. That's that's key. It doesn't start with us just manifesting a spontaneous love for God and saying, I'm I'm really strong. I believe in love and I can, man, I can love. I am good at that, right? And then we go and what's going to happen? We're going to fail at it. And then what's going to happen? 
most of us, if you're anything like me, are going to then start spiraling, right? We're going to start saying, well, I can't love. I just, what's, what's this whole thing with Christianity? I'm just out, right? And then you, you go to your room, close the door, you stop answering calls, you're ghosting people on text. You're just like, you're out, right? You're done because you can't do it. You're so frustrated with yourself. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So the character of God is given to us freely. It's key. It's key. The knowledge of a loving God. If we can't see God as somebody who fully and completely loves us in all of our brokenness, in all of our repeated failures over and over and over again, that he doesn't still love us, there's absolutely no way we can go and love each other. That is our stumbling block. That is the place to begin. Don't go out and try and do the rest of the stuff. Right? Don't try and do all of the commandments. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. Right? Like, like he is it. So I, I was looking at a parallel story. You know, this, John also wrote the Gospel of John. And so we have in John 3.16, one of the most well-known Bible verses, whether you're of faith or not, probably, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Well, I was, I was looking at some people that have written about this text, and they're saying there's a Greek word there called monogenes, right? Which is mono one, genus, which is to come from genetics. That's where we get that word from. And it's saying his only his only genes, his only DNA, his only kid, the only one he got, right? He sent down here to do the dirtiest work of all for all of us, his only one to die. And I was thinking, why does this story sound so familiar? Abraham and Isaac. If you go, to, if you go back to Genesis, if you want to turn with me and read along, in Genesis uh, 22 is the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. We're being tested to sacrifice Isaac, I should say. In Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, and Abraham said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son. It's that in, in the Greek of the Old Testament, it's the same exact word. Your only son, Isaac. Now, does anyone remember how Isaac came to be? The story of Isaac, right? Abraham is old. He couldn't have kids. Finally, finally in their old age, they have one. Abraham's been promised to be the father of a great nation, to be blessed. He has a covenant with God. Everything is going to spill out of Isaac. Isaac is it. And he's saying, here I am. And he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? You're asking me to do what? How on earth does a loving God who has promised me that only out of his will will I have a great nation ask me to sacrifice the only thing which could create a great nation for me? You must not be a loving God. That's what I think. But that's not what Abraham thinks. 
Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place for which God had told him. Who does that? What kind of faith do you have to have? What kind of knowledge that God is a loving God do you have to have so deep in you? Well, here's, here's what it is. Here's what Abraham has that we don't realize. You've got to look at the full story. If you go back to Genesis 12, Abraham is called by God. And in Genesis 12, it says, The Lord had said to, at that time he was called Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then he, he makes a promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. This is love coming from God to Abraham, right? This is not love coming from Abraham to God first. This is love coming from God to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Sound a little bit familiar to 1 John 4? That because we are so loved, we can love each other. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. He's a defender. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham struck out, left his family, left his home, left everything he knew in the place he was in faith. He had already given it all away. Abraham had already given everything away. He was fully dependent on God and had been so for years and years and years. And then he gets to a place where God asks him to do the one thing that, that doesn't make any reasonable sense, right? No earthly sense that a loving God would do that. But he knows so deeply because he's seen it so well that God's character is so loving that he will do it because he trusts. He has a trust in what God's going to do. Let that just sit with you. The first piece of what we need to know is that we must have a knowledge, a knowing of a loving God. That no matter all the things that are happening around us, all the suffering that we're going through, that we are to worship the one and only Father who created us for an intention in this world. And that intention is to love one another. Okay, put a pin in that. So, second thing we want to look at, an abiding in the loving of God. We go to verse 12, back to, circling back to 1 John, if you are in your Bibles, uh, chapter 4. Look at verse 12. This, this really got me. No one has ever seen God. It's true. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us, but I thought God was perfect. So how on earth can God's love be perfected in us? Isn't God in and of himself a perfect being? What does this mean? There is a cosmic importance that we participate with God. His intention, he created us as part of his purpose. He made us as an extension of his image. And he desires for us to love and be his sons and daughters. So the perfection in love that must happen is that we, we, his sons and daughters, 
have a purpose. We have something we have to do. And John's very clear about what that is. Let us love one another. So there is some kind of perfection in love that happens when we go and we love each other with a heroic love, with a self-sacrificial love, with a love that comes from somebody who is all loving and goes out with no expectation of return. It's not rooted in an outcome. That's so key. So there's a, there was a story last year. I ended up seeing this documentary, and it came to my mind. Uh, I don't know if any of you heard of a woman named Nadia Murad, but she won the Nobel Prize. She was one of the recipients of the Nobel Prize last year. Um, Nadia Murad was a Yazidi in Iraq. And so a Yazidi is a tribe in Iraq that was sort of this, I don't want to say the word backwater tribe, but an unknown, relatively untouched tribe. They had their own unique, they were not Islamic. They had their own sort of unique religion. They were um, in many ways sort of a, an indigenous tribe in, in the Iraqi, um, northern Iraq. ISIS comes through when she's 19 years old, just slaughters people in her village, right? The men, her brothers, they're all killed. Taking the younger women into slavery. And Nadia is enslaved by the Islamic State. She's held as a slave. She's beaten. Horrible things happen to her and those around her. And then one day her captors leave the house on walk and she's able to escape. And she flees and she becomes a refugee in Germany. And the rest of her young life she is spending talking to anybody she can about her people. Because if you're like me, do you know the Yazidi are a people? I had no idea the Yazidi are even a people. Right? We don't even know these people exist on this planet. And her one purpose is just to talk to anybody who will listen. So she does. She talks and she talks and she talks. And a Belgian newspaper picks her up. Pretty soon the United Nations Security Council on Human Trafficking is talking with her. She is being able to share this on a platform. Pretty soon George Clooney's wife, who is an attorney, is representing her. She's calling ISIS a bureaucracy of evil on an industrial scale. They're getting traction. Nadia's story is getting out there. She meets with the Pope. She meets with the President. She spends years of her life and her mission every time she speaks on the radio is, I just want more people to know about my people. I just want more people to know about my people. But then get this. Even though she has sacrificed heroically, she escaped and she is making and taking her life, not as her own, not as she would like to live her life, but she's heroically sacrificing her life and she's saying, my life's purpose is to live for those that are in pain, to bring attention to atrocity. She says, Yazidism isn't going to survive and it's not going to stay and they're not going to keep the traditions and the culture is going, it's going to end up dead like ISIS has intended. That's her fear. That's what motivates her. She's there to save them. But this is her goal. She says, I just want to see at least one ISIS criminal face the criminal court to give validation that all the work that I've been doing the past years wasn't for nothing, basically. That it just wasn't for nothing. I just want to see just one on trial, so I know that it wasn't for nothing. Nadia does not have that guarantee. So if her whole life, she has a valiant purpose, she has done valiant work, 
It is to be applauded. But if one ISIS criminal does not go through the criminal court as a result of her work, and that was her outcome, and that was she wanted, how do you keep going after that? How do you not hit rock bottom after that? If your hope is rooted in an outcome that is only yours to do or that can only happen with broken humans to broken humans, you are destined to failure. It's just the earth is messed up. We need a redeemer. We need a savior. We need a God who is love. Because if we are rooted in the outcomes that we can create or that others around us can create or some social justice, all of which are very, very important, if that's what we're rooted in in our faith and that's what drives us and we're looking for results, at some point when we don't see the results we want from our life, we are going to be weak in faith. We are going to be doubtful. We will not be like Abraham with his son Isaac. When that message comes to us, we won't pick up a knife and sharpen it and prepare the wood. We'll flee. We'll run. But there's a mission for us that's not, thankfully, rooted in the outcome we create. And that comes to my next point in looking at abiding in love, is that there is no fear in love. So if you look at verse 18... There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now, some of us have heard this verse. This is kind of like a, a verse that's thrown around, right? There's no fear in love. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Well, I have not been perfected in love, then. There is so much fear in my love. So much of my love is actually grasping at straws to be worth something. I love my family, I love my kids, I love my work so that I'll get love back. That's why I do it. I do it so that somebody will love me back so that I'll matter. That's why I love people. My love is so ridiculously transactional if you actually get to the bottom. It's not love at all. I have no heroic sacrifice in my love. And here's how I know, because when people don't, I start to wallow and feel sorry for myself. Right? I just, I just either beat myself up or I say, why don't they get it? Right? Like, don't they see what I did for them? Because it's rooted in our own outcomes. Our love is the opposite of verse 10. This is the definition of love, you guys. Verse 10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. We have to start there. We have to flip it around. We have to start with the fact that I am loving because I am loved. I'm already loved. So when people don't love me back, when that criminal isn't at the criminal court and Nadia Murad does not get her way, and I hope she does, but when she does not get her way, that it will not all basically be for nothing. I mean, this is like Nobel Prize winner, right? Admitting that she feels like everything she's done will basically be for nothing. That's not a hope that you can stand on. A hope in broken people doing things to make broken people better is not a hope. It is a, it is a good thing, but it must come from something else. And so it comes down to a question of control. Most of us, if we really get to the bottom of our lives, 
are either totally in, delusionally in control of our life. We would say, yeah, I'm in control. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm putting money away in the retirement account or I'm paying my bills on time or uh, I'm making meals. Um, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm in control, right? Don't mess with me. Don't tell me what to do. If that's how you feel, don't tell me what to do. You think you're in control. If that's the first feeling you get when people come talk to you, guess what? You think you're in control. Raise your hand with me because that's where I'm at with people. Don't tell me what to do. I have this planned out. I have this figured out, right? Well, if we've learned anything in 1 John, it's that that kind of control equals death. I mean, I'm sorry, it just, it equals death. That if you're in control of your life, guess who's not in control of your life? God is not in control of your life. And if God is not in control of your life, then you will die and you will stay dead. You have to give up the control. This was like the epiphany for me in this text. You have to give up the control. The paradox of our Christian living is that to be fully loved and to live a life that will have the outcome that we actually desire is to let go. That is the key paradox of our life as Christians. We cannot love sacrificially and heroically to other people if we are in control of our life. And so there's a process and product thinking. Now bear with me for a second, that's how my brain works. There's a process and product thinking. Most of us are product thinking people. We wake up in the day, we say, what do I want by the end of the day? I want to have dinner on the table. I want to have everything go well and no fighting in my house. I want to have everyone to bed on time. I'm a parent, so all these are parent metaphors. Okay, let's try it again. I want, I want to um, get to a place where... Uh, my, I'm dressed well when I go out with my friends, right? They think highly of me. I can talk about the cool things in my day and people actually like my job, right? I, like we have a product-minded thinking and we actually pick apart and create a narrative out of our week or of our life of things to talk about with people. So when somebody asks you at a party, you can say, yeah, this is what I do. And you have a specific narrative around what you do, right? You have a specific narrative around the things that you know will be of interest because we're product-thinking people. We're thinking about how do I get what I want, and we have a product in mind. We have an idea of who we are as a product, and we're creating it in our life. We're creating it online. We're creating it in all of these different ways. We're saying, I am fashioning myself to be this person because I have idealized this kind of person. Maybe it's the perfect mom that I've idealized. Maybe it's the, it's the, the perfect uh, employee. Maybe it's the self-expressionist, the, the poet. Right? We've said what we're going to be, and we're, we're, we're always chasing after that product. So that is the most important thing of our life. If we get back to that first question I stated, what is the most important thing in your life? If we're product-focused, and the most important thing in our life is something in this world, then we are hopelessly, hopelessly in control of our life. And what, what is all over these 21 verses is Get out of control. Be process first. The process is let us love each other. Right? The process is let us love each other. Worship the one who is in control. So am I saying, yeah, let your life just spin totally wild and have no direction? No. There's total direction in letting go and giving control to the one who actually runs your life. Now getting there Getting there is a hard process. That's a sermon for another day. 
But the reality is you first have to say God loves, God loves me. And what he wants for me will be worth it. What he wants for my life, if I follow this process of heroically and sacrificially loving other people as a process of every day, the thing I'm thinking about is how do I love you and serve you? That he will get me to where he wants me to be and I will have joy in my life. Are you there? Is your faith there? Because that is what faith is. If we go back to the story of Abraham, we continue on. Chapter 22, Genesis chapter 22, verse 7, if you want to follow along. Sorry, verse 12. We read verse 7. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, his one and only son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will, sure you bless, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven on the sands that are on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So I think at some point, some of you are sitting here listening going, yeah, but that was in the Old Testament. And yeah, that was Abraham, and he was a patriarch. and like th Those things don't happen anymore. Those things don't happen anymore. I'm going to challenge you. Are you saying that because you're scared that God is not a loving father to you? Because you're actually scared of letting go. Abraham completely lets go of everything. And what does God do? He brings in another that is there to be sacrificed for him. Guess what? Abraham didn't have Jesus crucified. He was on the other side of the cross from us. He didn't have that yet. We have it. We don't just have Abraham's story. We have the story of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. We know that that's happened, and we know that it's happened for the whole world, including us. So to sum it up, I don't know if any of you are, are music fans. I love Sufjan Stevens. He's a, an indie artist. He's a Christian. He's an amazing guy. He's not a theologian, but maybe he should be because this letter that he wrote, I love. Uh, he wrote this on his blog, and it was something to do with politics, but I, I think it's so helpful to sum up what we're talking about. He said, Christ did not come into this world to become a modifier. Let's get that in context of what we're talking about, to become a modifier. He doesn't just change it a little bit. It's not something you add on. Jesus said you must hate your father and mother and love your enemies. 
This is not obtuse provocation, but a spiritual deployment of true identity, which no longer resides in skin color, nation, ideology, genealogy, name, people, places, and things, but in the brotherhood and sisterhood of all mankind, which is ruled by love at any cost. Love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say, to gain access to true love and true self, you must die to yourself, sounds familiar, to your family, to your heritage, to your narrow-minded ideologies, to your ego, to your ill-conditioned consciousness. Some of the things that your brain is telling you are actually not true. That's what I'm saying. And to your false identity. Who you've created yourself to be, the product of you've created yourself to be, you have to die to that. Dying to yourself is letting go of those things that you're holding dear that are important to you. That are more important to you. This goes against everything the world has taught you and it goes against your instinct, he writes. We must acknowledge that the real substance of life has nothing to do with money or power or prestige or greatness. Your money and your power must be given away. To gain your life is to lose it. To lose your life is to gain it. Your life is not your own. Give your life away. Sincerely, Sufjan Stevens. Mic drop. <laughs> Give your life away. And even then, I find myself bucking out and go, yeah, but you're Sufjan. Yeah, you have tons of money. Easy for you to say. Give your life away, he says. I would, I can't, I don't know Sufjan, right? But he is living a process-driven lifestyle if he does what he professes. That is a process-driven lifestyle. He is saying, I am going to live by loving, by putting other people before me. I won't get what I deserve so other people can get what they ought to deserve. I will live like Christ for other people. So to believe that God is love and to abide in God's love is to serve other people wholly, completely, to give your life away because you had a ram come and it was given for you. You had a lamb come. You had Christ come and he's been given for you because God loved you first and that's why you can go love. So quickly, I know I'm running long. I'll go through just quick applications. Many of us are scared out of our minds to love and sacrifice. And it's because of weak faith. It's because of weak faith. Our trust and our allegiance is not in a loving God because somehow, somewhere, we've twisted God and we don't see him as truly loving. Not loving enough to give ourselves a way to let go of our tight grip. And I want you to try and tackle that in community this week. I want you to tackle that. If you do nothing else, tackle this idea of, do I truly have faith that God will love me no matter what if I follow what he asks, if I live a process-driven life? Two, are you adding God into your life? Or are you letting his love redefine the whole purpose of your life? Starting today, hearing this message, God's purpose to love each other should be the steering mechanism for your whole life. If other things that are set up do not go to that end, you have to get rid of them or you're going to get nowhere. 
Are you trying to love God by good works and moralism? If so, you will be disenfranchised from love because the things that you're doing when the end doesn't come, like Nadia, when those criminals are not put to court, you will say, what, what is anything worth? It's not worth it. All right, let's pray. Lord, there's so much to unpack in your word. We wrestle with your loving nature. We wrestle with trust. Trust in a, in a man. Trust in a God. Trust in something we can't see. Our faith is weak, Lord. Help us strengthen our faith. Give us people in our lives that can love us in the way that you love so we can see your love, Lord. Help us to do the same. In your name, amen. Stand with us and sing.